Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Emily Booth Chapman, who is the author of Election Day, How We Vote and What It Means for Democracy. This is a really interesting book about the experience of voting and how voting itself, when we go to the polls, as Emily talks to us about actually going to the polls, um, and how that is wrapped up in our understanding of what democracy is, both in the United States and in other countries. But I'm going to let Emily talk to us about about that. I'd like to welcome Emily Chapman to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Emily. Hi, Lily. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Um, so I am an assistant professor at Stanford University in the Political Science Department, where I've been uh, since I finished graduate school. Um, so this book came out of an experience uh, that probably a lot of graduate students and maybe people even more advanced in academic careers are familiar with, which is um, the experience of trying to talk about what we study with uh, people who are not academics. Uh, So family, friends, you know, chatty strangers on a plane or at the grocery store. And I think for me, this experience was particularly uncomfortable because I was studying something that many people had experiences with and opinions about, but I felt that what, you know, what I was reading in school, the way that most kind of academic democratic theorists would talk about democracy was very different from the kinds of conversations that I would have with people about it. So, you know, someone might ask me what I was working on or what I was studying, and I would say something like, oh, I study democracy and how we can make it better. And, you know, after people get past the initial, like, oh, good luck with that (laughs) reaction, um, the conversation almost always turned to voting. And people might say something like, oh, you know, voting is so important, uh, or, you know, why, why aren't young people voting? How can we get them to care? Um, and I just had this um, kind of experience uh, of sort of realizing that the democratic theory that I was reading was just not talking about voting very much. Uh, and when it did, it was, um, you know, in, in kind of, Uh, one of two directions. So one was, you know, there's a lot of work in sort of social choice theory, analyzing formal voting rules, but it seemed very detached from the actual experience of voting and the contexts in which we vote. Um, And then there was sort of the more kind of context sensitive uh, uh, democratic theory that was really thinking a lot about people's experiences and how citizens engage with democracy. And that was often sort of pushing back against the idea that voting should be central to our experiences of citizenship. So uh, there was a lot of stuff I was reading, trying to kind of act as a corrective and say, like, people shouldn't think so much about voting, but should focus more on things like deliberation um, or more kind of active uh, forms of participation. Uh, And I just uh, I had this sort of uneasy sense that um, 
there's something going wrong when democratic theory is not speaking to the experience of the people who are <laughs> purportedly doing democracy. Um, and then I also just had an intuition that there there is something special about voting that just wasn't being appreciated. Um, by democratic theorists at this time. So this book was kind of my effort to uncover what that might be to try and understand what it is that's special about voting, what makes the kind of experience of popular voting in sort of mass elections and uh, and referenda, what makes that different from, say, you know, like voting for, um, I don't know, faculty senators or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's sort of how this book came about. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been many years in the making and has, my thinking has evolved a lot, um, over that time. Uh, but I think, um, it's been a really sort of interesting and exciting process for me. And and you do a really nice job of sort of shining a light on this seemingly big absence in in democratic theory with regard to um, sort of thinking about the vote itself um, and the experience of voting and anticipation of it um, and how that plays out. And you note the fact that you're concentrating mostly on the United States, but it's not exclusive to the United States. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what we do when we when we go to vote and how that how that kind of fits into thinking about democracy and the broader umbrella of democratic theory? Sure. Yeah. So the way I think about voting, um, I try and sort of highlight, I think, three things that really come together in the sort of practice of voting in, in big elections um, that make it a kind of unique form of participation and a really important democratic practice that, that sort of deserves the, the attention uh, and celebration that it gets in, in kind of popular models of citizenship. So one of these is uh, mass participation. So voting uh, is something that that kind of garners participation from a uniquely large set of people, the vast majority of uh, citizens in, in most established democracies uh, vote. And moreover, there is kind of reflected in survey research and in public discourse, this kind of sense that um, there's an expectation that lots of people go to vote. So when when I go to vote, I'm not surprised to find that lots of other people are voting. I kind of know and expect uh, that this is something that I'm doing with millions of other people. Um, and this is, uh, I think, very important for, you know, uh, a kind of form of government that uh, purports to be based on the sort of input of, of all of its citizens that, in fact, you actually do have this active participation. Um, the second is um, uh, what I call using, unfortunately, very academic terms, the application of aggregative equality. Um and this just means that in plain language that votes are are counted, uh, that they are are treated with a sort of formal equality that is sort of reproducible, it's replicable, it's according to a, a rule that people know in advance, and it treats, you know, people's inputs as 
um, equally regardless of the content and regardless of who the person is. And that's really what distinguishes it from other kind of conceptions of equality that are also important in democracy, but might crop up in other um, types of, of participation or other kind of democratic activities. And the, the third element is um, what I call momentousness. And this is kind of bringing together two meanings of the word momentousness, where one meaning is the idea that something is sort of a, a temporally limited moment that we recognize um, as being like a, a sort of period of time that has a, a certain kind of social significance. And the other sort of sense of momentousness, which is like something that's really important and, and noteworthy, um, and that's kind of accompanied by a lot of, of sort of celebration and, and kind of things that make us pay attention to it. And so these three things together, this sort of like special form of aggregative equality, the mass participation, and the momentousness, create an experience where people are really sort of aware of and paying attention to a moment in which the, you know, a huge number of citizens, like almost the entire body, or we aspire to the entire um, body of the citizenry is participating on, on sort of formally, transparently equal terms. Um, and so it, it sort of like brings together this, um, these sort of ideas that are often seen as being intention uh, in democracy, which is the, the sort of dignity of individual participation on the one hand, the sense that we're not sort of like subsumed into the collective, but also the idea that what we are doing is fundamentally something that we do together with others, with lots of other people, with strangers, with people that we disagree with, um, that ultimately we are trying to engage in this project of democracy um, with many other people. And so the kind of moment of voting uh, sort of brings these ideas together and, and helps us to hold them together in our minds. And and I thought that the way that you broke that up in the book was really interesting and really helpful to sort of think about the experience of voting. Um, and, and one of the things that you say in the preface, which was added a little bit later, um, and also that you discuss in, in section or chapter five, um, is essentially some of what the changes that have been going on in the United States have wrought with regard to the the sort of I don't know how to say this correctly perhaps but like the the abrogation of the momentousness because we have you know sort of not everybody votes on the same day anymore uh, because of early voting or absentee ballots or in states um, where they have, you know, completely mail-in balloting that, you know, you don't go to the polling place with everybody else in your community, uh, which is something that you, you know, sort of struggle with in your conversation about this. Can you explain why it may be important for people to actually see each other when they're voting? Yes. Yeah, so, I think there are a few reasons. And I mean, the most basic is that human beings are, you know, we're not just brains and vats. <laughs> we're sensitive to our environment and what's going on around us. And so our perception of what we're doing, why it matters, and the things that we think about why while we're doing them uh, is going to be influenced by the things that we see around us, the experiences that we have. Um, and so the idea of why voting in person matters is that you do see other people voting um, 
And not only that, you also uh, are typically seeing and interacting with um, poll workers and kind of getting a sense of this is something that people are willing to dedicate their time to. It's something that the the public has committed to laying out huge numbers of of resources to. Um, And there's something to the experience of standing in line to vote, I think, that um, just gives a sense of, you know, this is not something that you're doing on your own. It's something that that you do with other people and that, you know, you know that there's probably going to be some people at the polling place with you uh, who are going to be voting differently. And that's that's part of the the process. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's something about the the physical experience of, of voting in person that, you know, in the, in the best cases uh, can be captured there. But there's also a kind of uh, concern about the, the sort of like temporal um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, diffusion or dilution of the voting experience, which is that... Some of what, you know, the election moment does is it creates this kind of like concentrated set of attention around politics where it's not just that I'm thinking about politics, uh, and, but I also think that most of the people around me are thinking about it. It creates a sort of um, uh, a fertile ground for conversations uh, about democracy, about voting that help to kind of reinforce um, the sort of ideas about, you know, the importance of of the act and the importance of democracy more generally, but also creates, um, you know, uh, kind of favorable conditions for uh, organizations to reach out and attract new um, uh, participants and, and to try and mobilize people who might not otherwise be because that if sort of people are already paying attention, then the, the cost to kind of create that additional boost of getting people to kind of hear your message or to sort of push them over the edge to, to mobilize them uh, is in some respects, I think, um, likely to be lower. And so I think there's some concern that those sort of elements which rely on a kind of coordination of social attention uh, are going to be lost if the... Um, if the moment becomes too sort of diffuse or loses that, that bounded momentousness. And I wanted to follow up by something that you had also talked about in regard to sort of the diffusion of, of the voting experience in that it, it potentially is at odds with the democratic foundation of voting. Um, And, you know, we're talking here again about the more, esoteric understanding of, you know, what is democracy um, and, and and sort of democratic theory. Um, and that oftentimes, especially in, in terms of our popular culture understanding of like voting and, and our experience in our country or, you know, the Israelis in their country or the Germans or the Indians, um, where, you know, India carries off as you open the book with these massive elections because there's so many people there. Um, and, and so we have, you know, we have this experience in our mind that this is where we are being democratic, small d. Um, but that if the vote is diffused over time because of convenience issues or 
health issues or, or whatever it is, how does that perhaps disconnect the citizen from the democracy that he or she lives in? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are uh, a few uh, kinds of concerns. So one is the, the worry that people might, um, fail to link what they're doing with um, what other people are doing. So someone who votes kind of very early in the election phase, sort of a a month before uh, her fellow citizens, may just like, you know, not kind of sense these as being part of the the same activity. Um, And this is particularly of concern when you have a a kind of polarization of when and where people vote, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. The other kind of concern is the link between the sort of action that citizens take and the result. So when you have more of a gap between when people act and when um, the the sort of decision actually uh, is made, then there's this sort of... Uh, you know, worry that you lose the feeling that like, okay, that uh, election result was the product of my action among uh, kind of many others. They're sort of like, oh, you vote and then some other things happen. And then, oh yeah, there's a a sort of result later. Um, Whereas the kind of immediacy of election day sort of helps to to draw those together. Now, I I will say, I don't think that this is like an inherent feature of time. I think there are are things that we can do to sort of like socially construct the experience of time. Um, But uh, but I do think that that's kind of one of the big worries about, um, uh, you know, when and where we vote is thinking about like, how does it create an experience that allows us to link our own actions with those of others and with the results that they produce. Um, And then, yeah, so to come back to this uh, thing I mentioned about the polarization of when and where people vote. So this is, I think, something that wasn't a concern of mine when I started writing this book because it wasn't a phenomenon in the United States when I started writing this book. But in recent years, it has been the, become the case that um, uh, partly as a result of the polarization of COVID responses and partly as a result of, um, you know, Republican narratives attempting to, to delegitimize um uh, mail-in voting, you see that uh, mail-in voting especially is, has become a more democratic phenomenon, whereas in-person voting uh, has become a more uh, Republican phenomenon. And that I find really worrisome uh, because I think it creates a kind of greater gap between you know how people understand what they're doing and, and what other people are doing. So if everyone that you know votes, you know, um, in person at the polling place, and then all of a sudden you find out about all of these new mail-in votes that are coming in, you might be sort of more inclined to be sort of suspicious of those votes or to, to kind of not uh, link them with the kind of activity that you are doing, um, especially if, um, uh, if, if you know that they, they're mostly sort of coming from the other side. So th- I think that that's a real concern. And, and one of the things that I say in the book is that, um, you know, I think even more fundamental than like the like trying to capture the election day experience is like trying to create an experience where people do feel like they're engaged in the same activity as as other people and um, and are able to to kind of see these um, 
as being part of a, a shared process of resolving disagreement. I, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, again, this sort of, there's some critique of the fixation or celebration of voting within um, democratic theory circles. Um, and you're sort of pushing back on that throughout the book. Uh, and you're, I think you're doing a very successful job of it, um, in a variety of ways because of the way that you explain, you know, sort of the point of voting for a citizen in a democracy. Um, and that, yes, there are many other things that one does in participating in democracy, but there's something unique about the vote itself and that experience. Can you explain why that particular experience as opposed to sitting on a jury or, um, you know, going to a, a town hall meeting um, is, is unique to our thinking about democracy and our place in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes down to the, this sort of the combo of mass participation and, um, and this sort of unique, uh, unique sort of formal application uh, of equality, um, and the the sort of general idea is like a lot of these, you know, really immersive experiences of participation, like you said, like serving on a jury or, or participating in local politics. I don't in any way want to denigrate the the value of those. Um, and, and sort of one of the things I argue in the book is that you know different practices of democracy realize different values and they, they sort of work together in different ways. Um, the, the sort of value of voting is that it, it allows us to um, see ourselves uh, to kind of like locate our place within this, this project that really is a kind of massive, massive scale. Um, so, you know, I think when you're talking about a kind of local community, face-to-face interactions are really valuable and a lot of weight can be put on those kind of immediate experiences. But when you're talking about a massive political community filled with millions of people who will never meet each other and who are, you know, experiencing, you know, disagreements that cut, you know, really fundamentally to the core of the the values that we hold and are trying to, you know, maintain a, a, a peaceful uh, and, and, and sort of functioning government in, in the face of that, and to, you know, address really deep and challenging political um, uh, problems within that uh, context, I think you have to have practices that enable people to, um, to sort of recognize each other as a part of that shared project that kind of draw people in and, and bind people to that that sort of political community, but also that can um, that everyone can see as as kind of legitimate and and to not be um, uh, you know suspicious of. And I think that the 
you know, this is, I, I think it's a, it's a very hard problem, but one of the advantages of the kind of equality that goes into voting is that it, it has this kind of ability to scale and to be replicated. So, um, you know, one kind of equality that's really commonly talked about in, in democratic theory is this idea of deliberative equality. And it's really attractive because people internalize in deliberative equality, people internalize kind of attitudes of respect towards other people and kind of exhibit a, a sense of concern for the interests of other people. But that kind of equality is not um, you know, transparent to others. We sort of have to rely on the idea that other people are, are acting in good faith. And in a kind of really diverse and really large community, you may need some kind of more concrete uh, ways of, of thinking about how to treat other people as equals that we can all see and recognize and tell uh, when they've been met or when they've been violated. And that's one of the real values, I think, of the way we think about equality in voting is this sort of, we have a fixed rule, we can see how it treats people as equals, and we can replicate it. You know, we can go back and and audit uh, a vote um, if need be, which you can't really do with a conversation. <laughs> um, and so I think that those are, are sort of really important features when thinking about what voting does in a kind of mass democracy. And, and so I, I really enjoyed sort of going through the book and, and learning about, you know, to some degree, some of the ways that people experienced voting in the past, um, that you sort of talk about in, in, bits and pieces here and there. Um, and I, I kept reflecting on the fact that, you know, since we have all of this media, right, we, we, we can understand or learn about results. Um, Steve Kornacki with his, you know, maps on election night of which county we all become, you know, experts on Georgia counties now, um, on election night or here in Wisconsin, we all become experts on, you know, Waukesha County results. Um, that, that that was not the case for the longest stretch of, of the history of not only the United States, but lots of other countries as well. So has, has that, you know, has that experience of, you know, being able to watch CNN and, and Fox and all these other, all these other television shows and, um, you know, 24 hour news and see these, you know, sort of data scientists explaining all about, you know, what's going on with which ballots, where, um, how, how has that experience also potentially shaped our thinking about like my vote, Lily Gorin in Wisconsin? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and it's one that I think I I don't tackle quite as much uh, in the book. Although I've I've been thinking more and more about the temporal aspects of voting, and one of the um, yeah the, the sort of interesting features about this is that the um, the election results they don't just all come at once. Um, they they sort of come over time. Now I do think that it's important to to think about the fact that you know we conceive of election results in in different ways. And so you know when you're thinking about the presidential election, ultimately what we mainly care about is who's going to be president. And so that's kind of one result. But congressional elections, for example, or or senate elections, you know there are those you know results coming um, 
immediately in there the sort of results of smaller elections, which are the pieces of this kind of bigger election that we um, understand. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I I do think a bit about and talk a bit about in, in the book is that the way that we understand the kind of standards that we apply to um, voting rules to determine what are the best voting rules. And I think that this would also apply to thinking about, you know, how does the sort of process of reporting results like shape our experience of this is the idea that, you know, elections can be conceptualized in different in these different ways. Like we can be thinking of this as like, okay, the election of Congress is just like, it's one big election, but it's kind of distributed (laughs) among lots of things. Or we can be thinking of it as lots of different separate elections uh, for the states. And I think what you're sort of talking about really does kind of push towards this thinking about it as one big election that's distributed in lots of uh, different ways. And, And I think one kind of concern about that is that that the way that the results are reported, um, you know, in this kind of like trickling fashion um, can can kind of draw our attention more to the things that that sort of separate us than to the um, the kind of common experience. I think another big issue that comes up with the the sort of information that's available and the way that reporting works is um the, the problem of closure um, and the, the fact that, you know, in addition to, well, it's, it's, you know, a series of individual decisions of different people as to like when they declare an election uh, to be closed when they, they sort of call it. Um, and that has created, you know, sort of notorious problems in the past. Um, and can also lead to kind of concerns about legitimacy if if the sort of losers feel that the election was called too soon um, and that it was some attempt to kind of close contestation that really wasn't closed yet. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, we do have actually processes for contesting elections afterwards which are there for good reason. Like all of our processes can can go wrong, and so that there is, I think, an importance to um, not attempting to to sort of um, declare, you know, that we know the results before, uh, in fact, we do, um, or before people have had a chance to pursue those those sort of legitimate legal avenues of, of contestation. Um, and so, yeah, so something that I don't think it's in the book, but I I have thought about uh, recently and it's very much in the spirit of the book is thinking about, okay, what happens after an election and how do we close the electoral moment in a way that um, sort of is able to take that energy of elections and, you know, uh, translate it into a a sort of healthy form of inter-election politics. And and I wanted to I mean, you sort of you 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 highlight the fact that that's what needs to come next in the introduction or the preface. I can't remember where you you sort of highlighted that. And you're like, I'm doing all the stuff that that leads up to Election Day and Election Day. But then there's a discussion of what has to happen after Election Day, um, which I'm assuming maybe your next book project. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but I, I did want to ask you, because you know, democratic theory, small d democratic theory is an abstraction. Um, and an understanding of, you know, the, the form in which we live, but in our thinking about it as political theorists, it's, it's something that is 
uh, a theory, an idea. Um, and and as you've been pointing out, and the book makes really clear that that the actual experience of voting is is to some degree when democracy becomes real in a lot of ways, um, which I think is is important to understand and and sort of digest. Um, but you also have a whole chapter devoted to political parties, <laughs> which tend to mess with theories. <laughs> and and so, um, you know, we, we've we've had parties in the United States. I talked to my students about they are not in the Constitution. Washington warned us against them in his farewell address. And yet they've been with us pretty much from the start um, in the United States. And obviously they operate in in a particularly different way in a lot of parliamentary systems um, where the party is, in fact, perhaps what you are actually voting for as opposed to a person. Um, and so I'm curious about the role that parties do play in our thinking not only about democratic theory, but also this, this sort of experience of voting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So political parties are, um, pretty much a, a, a practical necessity for votes to turn into, uh, political results that, um, actually, uh, you know, can, can resolve disagreements and, or temporarily at least provisionally resolve disagreements and, and lead to uh, a kind of meaningful control that voters have uh, over the government. So in the chapter on, on political parties, um, I sort of introduced that with this problem of agenda setting. So one of the big kind of problems with thinking about voting is like, okay, what do we vote on? How do we get to electoral choices that are meaningful, that are not just the result of elite agenda manipulation, uh, and that are reflective of sort of real political concerns that people have and and meaningful divisions and, and sort of problem uh, disagreements that need to be resolved. Um, and so the kind of work of political parties is simultaneously uh, to uh, organize competition. So to take like lots of different concerns that people have and to stitch them together into a kind of uh, a sort of options that, that you can vote on to, to bundle them in a way that you can say like, aha, you know, the, the Democratic Party, voting for the Democratic Party means voting for all of these things and voting for the Republican Party means voting for all of those things. Um, so they, they create these sort of electoral choices, but they also link them to governance in really important ways. So, you know, one of the crucial functions of political parties is to link offices such that you're not just voting for, you know, a bunch of individual discrete um, officials and you have no idea how they're going to interact once they get into office. If you have political parties, then those, those different offices are linked in a way such that you're able to predict how voting for a particular uh, candidate is going to um, 
is going to influence governance given who else is is in these other offices. Um, so that organization component is is really important. Um, there are other ways that we could imagine setting an agenda. I think the uh, virtue of political parties is that if they have this kind of quasi-institutional status um, that makes them on the one hand more um, flexible and open to new kinds of, of challenges uh, than, say, some of the proposals that um, um, the democratic theorists have floated, like having these kind of randomly selected mini publics or something setting an agenda. Um, so p- political parties are more flexible than that. And so they're going to, to be able to incorporate new challenges that arise from, say, social movements or, or other um, political actors who are kind of operating outside of institutions. But also they're, they're sort of more um, formalized than a lot of the kind of interest group pluralist politics um, that is sort of constantly shifting and notoriously difficult to regulate. And so that means that that political parties, it's a little bit more tractable to try in and sort of think about what kinds of standards we want to impose on them in terms of how they treat people equally, um, but also feel that they're going to be able to um, to respond to new um, uh, new problems and needs to adapt in society. Um, and I think there's there's sort of one more big element to the story of what political parties do. I know I've gone on a little bit, but a lot okay. to say. It's fine. <laughs> um, uh, political parties uh, historically are have just been absolutely essential for the actual mobilization of uh, you know the mass democratic public. So. Um, you know, the sort of expansion of the right to vote uh, needs to be accompanied by the kind of infrastructure in place to actually get people to the polls, to convince people who have been excluded for, for long periods of time that actually politics is a sort of meaningful way for them to um, to engage in and to sort of exercise control um, over uh, their environment and their their social world, and that it's you know it's their sort of right and and it's their place, it's their role to to be involved. And and political parties do this, and sometimes they do this for cynical reasons. Um, I think probably most of the times they do this for cynical reasons, like they just want to win elections. But in effect, it's like the rules are such that if you have the numbers, um, then you win. And so there is this incentive that parties have to um, to really kind of get out more people than the other guy. Um, and so I, I really kind of place a lot of emphasis on that as like political parties being an essential piece of what makes the mass participation element of voting actually uh, work in practice. And and I wanted to sort of circle back on, on that point, as well as some of the things that you discuss in the book um, with regard to advocacy around or different requirements for voting, which can sort of undo or sort of chip away at the idea that the the vote is something where we are all equal mm-hmm. and and you know we have seen in lots of states recently 
um, requirements, different requirements for being able to vote. Um, and, and we have a history in the United States of excluding more than we include people um, in terms of the right to vote. Uh, and I always talk about this with my students, that the Constitution doesn't necessarily guarantee the right to vote. It, it sort of prevents certain groups from not having access um, as, you know, as we have reformed the Constitution over the course of 200 years um, with a number of amendments. Uh, so, so this idea, which I think is super important to thinking about your theory on the vote is, you know, how, how do we continue to work, I guess, in context of different voting requirements? Yeah. So I I think this is important. And in part, it's, you know, one of the reasons why I I think it's, you know, I I grapple a lot with the the kind of nitty gritty, um, uh, sort of policy recommendations, especially around, um, um, voting administration, um, because I think there often is a kind of case uh, to be made for various sorts of restrictions, um, but that case is deployed in cynical ways that um, can, you know, that are not in line with the the spirit <laughs> of what voting is for. And so, you know, I think. Th- the, the sort of problems often come in in ways that, you know, it's hard to tell just from looking at the, the face of the matter. You know, it's hard to say um, just off the bat that like any kind of voter ID requirement is uh, too burdensome. Most democratic countries have them. Um, and the, the real problem is the way that they're being deployed. So, um, that the choice of which IDs count is very carefully targeted to exclude certain groups, uh, that the, um, the ability of people to get information from um, election officials about what they need to vote is um, uh, an, another sort of place in which discrimination can come in. And then it all, there's also the um, often, you know, humiliating interactions that people can have with, with poll workers around, um, such things. And so I think this is one of the real challenges with, um, thinking about taking the, um, the sort of understanding of what, um, voting is supposed to be for and what it's about and sort of using that to make blanket statements about particular policies, uh, or what we ought to do, because so much of it is about, you know, the spirit uh, and the principles that ought to animate our thinking, not only in kind of selecting among policies, but also in thinking about how are they designed and and how are they um, applied. So I I think that that's the kind of uh, core thing that I try to think about is is really emphasizing (laughs) that the importance of that kind of aspiration to universal uh, participation, um, this idea that you know, it's not just about having access to vote, the vote, which that is like clearly a sort of baseline um, necessary condition here. But the sort of standard that we're really going for is actually that, you know, we create an invitation to people to vote, that, that people are sort of encouraged to vote. And so what I try to do in the book is to kind of really highlight the policies that are 
kind of most oriented towards that uh, sort of that aim that the idea is like, not just that they sort of reduce material costs of voting, but that they do so in a way that also signals to people uh, that we want them to vote and that creates sort of conditions in which mobilization uh, is more possible. And so uh, one of the things I talk about, for example, is same-day voter registration, uh, which is a way of lowering the kinds of costs uh, to voting that are most likely to fall on the people who are sort of most uh, marginalized. So it's, it's you know, the kind of uh, voter access thing that, that makes voting more accessible to people who do not normally vote. But also it, it um, you know, it makes it easier for organizations to get involved in mobilizing people because it's, it's lower cost to just kind of, uh, you know, meet with people one time and get them registered and voting. And it happens at a time when the sort of interest and kind of excitement, the buzz around the election is at its peak. So it, it sort of captures that energy. Um, and so I think that there are sort of lots of challenges around around many policies, but I, I think there are some like that one that are a little bit more um, unambiguous uh, that you can you can sort of both expand access and kind of like focus on that. Um, the experience of voting at the same time. And and you do an interesting thing in this book uh, by straddling theory and practice. Um, and so I, I was appreciative of that since it was not necessarily just a theoretical exploration of the idea of the vote, but also, you know, as you say, you're not necessarily proposing a bunch of policies, but you are sort of looking at like where there's space to sort of develop this experience into one where we do think about it as as part of our being in a democracy. Um, I really found that to be particularly useful. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I often encourage my students to vote because usually they haven't voted yet. Um, and then we go through a whole conversation about, you know, the experience and you can make a mistake and all of those things. And, you know, Wisconsin has has historically had very high voter turnout compared to other states in the country. Um, and so trying to sort of position it as something that that, you know, you should learn how to do. Um, well, thank you. I, I, uh, I definitely try to think about the book in that way and, uh, also encourage my students to vote. Exactly. So now that you have this magnum opus on the vote (laughs) leading up to, and the experience itself, we already talked a little bit about maybe the next, the next thing that you're wrestling with will be what happens next. So what are you working on next, Emily? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I am actually kind of going in, in two directions. So one is um, I do have a, a project thinking kind of more broadly about both sort of what happens before the election and what happens after and thinking kind of in general about election time and, and how we structure it. Um, and uh, though I think that's likely to be a paper rather than a book, uh, I, I am also doing a, a kind of um, what probably seems like a 180, but is I think importantly related. And the, the next project that I'm working on is on um, activism and, and activist ethics. Um, and 
the way this ties in is that I, I sort of situate voting as within a, a democratic system uh, as a practice that plays a, a very particular role. Uh, but I think it, it only works because there are other types of democratic practices that play other types of roles. Um, and activism to me is particularly interesting because many of the things that I talk about relating to voting and, and the kind of ethical guidance that we get from there, which has to do with the sort of institutional structure of it and the kind of development of a lot of social norms that help us understand our particular role and that allow us to kind of interact with other people within that particular structure are not present in activism. Um, and, and in fact, I think there's often a kind of sense of suspicion of social norms and, and sort of institutionally prescribed roles in a sense that they actually don't provide uh, very good guidance um, in, in many situations. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about the, the nature of what you know, what can provide um, ethical guidance uh, to activists in a way that's, you know, it's not just a, a set of principles that, you know, uh, are in theory guiding us, but are like really hard to sort of figure out exactly how to live them out. But like, what are the sort of actual practices and, and things that we can use to kind of um, help uh, sort of make sure that that it doesn't um, run off the rails or, or to sort of lead to terrible misjudgments. Um, so that's, um, yeah, that's, that's what I've been working on. Um, if, if that one becomes a book, I'd be happy to talk to you about it on the new books network. Once it gets, you know, published and stuff like that. I, I hope, would love that. <laughs> I hope you will join me again. Um, I want to thank Emily Booth Chapman for joining me today to talk about election day, how we vote and what it means for democracy. This was published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. I'm sure, it, I know it's available on the Princeton University Press website. Emily, is there a brick and mortar store to which you want to give a shout out? Sure, I'll give a shout out to Kepler's Books in Menlo Park, California. All right, thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. It's a lovely book. Thank you very much. This was fun.